Welcome to Fireside Chats with Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. My name is Felicia Maxwell Barrett. These fireside chats are short conversation with Utah citizen diplomats who are reformulating the American worldview by bringing their global experience back to Utah. Today we ask, with Her Royal Highness the Queen's passing and the onset of a new king, is the United Kingdom at the dawning of a new era? Our guest addresses this question from a Scottish point of view. I am pleased to welcome Grant Baskerville, a now local Utahn. Grant has 15 years of experience engaging Westminster, Whitehall, Brussels, the devolved institution, U.S. federal agencies, and Congress. He has worked in both the public and private sector with a strong track record of effectively managing multidisciplinary teams focused on advocacy, campaigning, media relations, public policy, stakeholder engagement, and other leadership development. Grant previously served as a board member of three UK-based nonprofits, including the Postcode Green Trust, Green Economy Pathfinder, and Skills for Energy. And we at Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy are thrilled that he has also joined our board of directors. I hope you enjoy this conversation. now a, a UK national and, and more recently in the last five or six weeks um, have become a US national. So only moved to the US uh, in the last four years or so, but originally from um, a small town, a small commuter town outside Glasgow, which is Scotland's largest city. Uh, and the town itself is called Cumbernauld, so maybe 50, 60,000 people. And so, yeah, grew up there, had a pretty normal life for all in, intents and accounts but it was really when I started getting to my teens that I had the opportunity to do international travel which kind of sparked a little bit of a fire in myself so when I was uh, 17 I had the had the chance to do some travel to Africa so Kenya Tanzania and some other countries and then throughout Europe as well which I, I think sparked a, a big sense of curiosity in myself about learning more uh, particularly from different cultures. So from that, went to university uh, in Scotland, had the opportunity to study abroad uh, in Sweden for the best part of a year, and then moved into uh, a failed career in, in banking after university that lasted a very short period of time uh, before I got to kind of develop myself in my real passion, which is kind of politics and economics. So I had a, a great spell at the European Parliament, work as an advisor. And then in, after the 2007 Scottish parliamentary elections, I got asked to come back to Edinburgh uh, to work as an advisor in the Scottish Parliament. So I consider myself having a good deal of experience, not only in understanding you know, Scottish politics, but also Scotland's role and the potential role in, in European politics as well. So if I understand correctly, you just became a U.S. citizen. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So um, moved here in July 2018, literally applied for my citizenship at the earliest possible oppor opportunity and, and just went through my ceremony in the last few weeks, which was fantastic. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the work that you did with the Scottish Parliament? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a, a parliamentary advisor to um, two backbench members of the Scottish Parliament, two MSPs. So these were members of what were essentially the ruling party that ruled by minority government 
and so they represented uh, the Highlands and Islands region of Scotland. So uh, remote, rural, but incredibly beautiful, fantastic people, great culture. So it was a really, really interesting period where we were advising them on everything from kind of developments in agriculture through to um, higher education and how you promote more investment in more rural parts of Scotland to healthcare challenges, uh, the, the whole the whole gamut of, of issues that you can imagine that affect rural communities. And they were two, oh, they are two fantastic individuals that I had the pleasure for working, working with as well. So recently we had uh, the world experience, the passing of Her Majesty, the, the Queen. W- you know, what, how, what was your experience when you received the news of the Queen's passing? I mean, it, it was, it was kind of, um, it was pretty somber, to be honest. Um, I think that was kind of generally affected in the news coverage and when people, people were interviewed. I think irrespective of views of, of the, the royal family as an institution, people had, broadly speaking, a kind of deep affinity for the Queen just because she was this, she was just such like this uh, fixture of like continuity you know, like, I think there was a, a sense that she was a bit of a rock in a way. I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that as in terms of just stability, that no matter what was going on, be it in UK or kind of the international realm, she was one of these constants. So I think it was, it's, albeit, you know, she was a, a grand age that, that she reached, it still, like, it still caught people by surprise, I think in a large part because, albeit, you know, folks have known that this has been coming for you know many many years is an, an inevitability I, I don't know how much how well people were actually prepared for the eventuality itself and so that's perhaps how you've seen the, the kind of public reaction un, unfold I think for many people it probably feels like one thing after another like we've had such insta- instability between different referenda changes in the kind of political leadership at the UK Parliament, the exit from, like the exit with Brexit. Uh, it just feels like a lot of change uh, for many people, whereas the, the Queen was that kind of constant. And that, you know, I think people are searching for what's, you know, what's next, what comes with uh, the now King Charles. So what does come next with King Charles? <laughs> it's a huge question, honestly. It really is. You know, uh, the party that I worked for in Scotland is called the Scottish National Party, the the first minister, who's the top politician and is also leader of the SNP, she came out, you know, very very quickly and, and promptly and respectfully and and you know highlighted you know Scotland's essential allegiance to to the king as the as the head of state and I think wanted to provide that level of stability at a, a like a, at an early outset to not inject any sort of instability or questions as to what's going to happen in Scotland. In terms of the UK, I think in many ways as a whole, it's going to be kind of business as as usual, not to use like a crass term, but just in in terms of having the monarchy. The biggest question I imagine comes uh, with the Commonwealth and particularly the kind of increasing number of states that are, are choosing to move away from having the UK's monarch as their head of state and actually shift into republic status. And it, it's perhaps happening in countries where you might not have anticipated it before. 
uh, but is is becoming a bigger question. So I think from that perspective, the the monarchy has this interesting interesting job of almost trying to consolidate or engender uh, confidence in its position and can you know continued role, particularly in an international perspective as well. But that's that's going to be an open question for a lot of countries. You were talking about some of the countries that might be moving away from the the royal family. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? What what are you seeing in terms of this political shift with the Commonwealth? So one really interesting example is um, Australia, which you know is is often seen as kind of very closely linked with the UK. But I've just been reading some interesting articles recently where I think there's some growing questions about whether the now king should continue to be head of state in Australia or whether they, they should essentially shift to kind of parliamentary republic system. And I think that kind of, I don't, well, I'm not an Australian native or anything like that, but from my perspective growing up, that, that kind of notion and idea would have felt very alien, but is almost reflective of the very uh, changing demographics that you're seeing in Australia as well. You know, so for example, you know, like you had significant migration from UK nationals to Australia for decades and perhaps represented a very large portion of, of, of the population, either from heritage or, or new migrants. Uh, nowadays, you know, Australia is a, a you know, proper diverse nation where you have, you know, folks from Greece, the Lebanon, Southeast Asia. So it's a very different population that perhaps don't have the same uh, historical links or heritage links to the UK. I mean, I'm just speculating here, but that might be part of the kind of shift in perception or why you might hear increasing calls for, you know, should we think about a presidential, an elected president rather than having a, you know, a head of state in the form of King Charles? It's interesting that you're talking about changing demographics because that seems to be a, a really important conversation that, in my personal opinion, we need to draw more attention to. Um, but with this changing demographics, you know, whether it is age or it's ethnicity or it's religion or, you know, what have you, um, do you see that in this narrative of the future of the UK, that there are the different demographics that are pulling from to one side versus another side. I mean, do you see it being as divisive as say it is in America right now? Yeah, I, it's a really interesting question. I don't necessarily have like a, a, a neat or tidy answer to that. I think the question to, to perhaps simplify it in my own head is like, who do you relate to? And so the, de- you know, the demographic split of, you know, folks my parents' age and, and older, you know, pre- now King Charles is, has been a kind of permanent fixture in their lives, whereas folks in the kind of younger demographic, the younger royals are perhaps kind of more representative and and reflective of, of like their views, their thoughts. So I, I, I think there's perhaps like a kind of divide there where you know, King Charles might represent perhaps the kind of old guard in the, the tradition of the monarchy, whereas you have these new royals who represent the direction that it could potentially go. And there might be a little bit of, of like tension there. Sorry, just to further that point, there's probably an appetite to move faster than perhaps the royal family might want, <laughs> might want to as well, or the institution itself. 
faster as in, and the younger people are wanting to see more substantial change than, and the Royal or the older population being more of that traditional, we do the things because that's the way it's always been done. Is that what you're meaning? I, I, I think so. I mean, um, the Kate and, and William are kind of the, the epitome of, of like class and demeanor and, um, you can find like many, many positive ways to, to talk about how they engage with the public. And I think they've just been like universally well, well received in, in that regard. They're, they're viewed as very re- relatable, so to speak. I certainly from my own perspective. Yeah. Whereas, uh, King Charles looks, feels, speaks much more like a kind of traditional royal of old, so to speak. So, so taking this conversation about the UK and bringing it back over to um, Scotland, um, do you still do you see that same changing demographics? Uh, you know, the conversation of change and in innovation versus tradition taking place in in your country as well. I mean, I'm obviously a little bit biased, and I'm a very proud Scot. But um, you know. Just as an example, during the, the Brexit referendum, I think it was roughly two-thirds of Scots voted to remain in the European Union, whereas in total the rest of the UK kind of voted to to leave. So I think Scots are you know very forward thinking in their, their outlook in life, but also more pro-European, perhaps their their UK uh, counterparts. So I think there there is like a kind of chasm growing, certainly politically. There's deep, deep cultural, like social ties between Scotland and and England, you know, and other na- other union nations as well. You know, we are a union of of nations. It's not like states or anything like that. So there will always be close, close ties. But I think the interesting thing, and hopefully not to go off on too much of a tangent, is that if if there is another referendum as to whether Scotland should leave leave the UK and join the EU. I would say with an increasing degree of confidence that that's the way that the, the country is moving for sure. And it's, you know, if you don't feel like your voice is being heard, if you cast your vote to stay in the EU and the EU and yet you leave, that doesn't feel like democratic representation for a lot of Scots. I don't think so. There, I think Scots that previously didn't support independence um, are probably leaning more towards that because they, they felt safe. They felt a part of the European Union and part of that part of that institution albeit with its imperfections in terms of what that means in terms of like with regards to the monarchy i don't think anything particularly much in the short term but say scotland hypothetically was to become an independent country it might lead to further discussions about the role of the monarchy as a head of state in scotland at you know similar to australia or canada or other other countries further down the line so the, the big question and, and the point of our fireside chats is, you know, we are always looking at how do these big world affair issues impact us directly here in Utah? What would you say the answer is to that? Why would people in Utah care about what is happening with the United Kingdom and specifically what is happening um, in terms of, of the sh- shifting change with Scotland and what could potentially be a, a new direction for Scotland? Well, the U.S. as a whole has huge sort of social, economic, and political ties uh, to the U.K. as a as a whole. So, you know, what happens with the U.K. and its its role in the world 
has a kind of material implication for the US that we, we should kind of take note of. Within that, you know, Utah is a landlocked state, but is very internationally and outward, outward focused. You know, so the, the companies here do a tremendous amount of international exports in comparison to, you know, to some of their peers. So, you know, Utah is a leading economy within the context of, of the US. So it, it, I think it behooves um, folks here to kind of take note of, you know, what's happening in, in the UK and the trajectory of, of where the, the union's going. Um, because, you know, just even using economics as an, an example, um, events in, in one country can ripple and have kind of negative impact on the on others. You look at the, the UK just now, the, the, the UK Chancellor, who's the kind of um, chief financial minister for the government, announced a mini budget where uh, essentially he was proposing tax cuts uh, that without revealing how they might be financed. Um, that sent kind of the media into spiral. People got very concerned. And then the IMF, kind of the International Monetary Fund, did this kind of unprecedented thing where they gave a, a, a pretty big rebuke to the UK, which is a, you know, a G7 country. It's a, a leading economy. You know, so the specter of the, the UK falling into a reception, which we've, uh, a, a recession, which we, of course, doesn't happen, has potential implications at home here as well. Anything you want to add about this particular subject? You know, as I say, I'm a, a migrant. I've just moved here myself. I don't have like a lineage of family that have emigrated to the, to the U.S. per se. But I always find it really interesting as a point of conversation, just how, peop- how people really care about their, their, their heritage and their lineage here and actually track back to where their ancestors came for, from and traveled to the, to the U.S. And so I just think that's like such an interesting component of life here in, in Utah, for one, and hope that, uh, hope that continues because there are such deep ties between um, not only the UK, but Scotland and Utah, which I've been finding out, finding out recently as well, which is both a source of amusement, but also a little bit of pride as well. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. And to learn more about today's guest speaker and our fireside chats, check out our website, utahdiplomacy.org. Also, explore our website to learn more on how you can get involved with diplomacy in Utah, one handshake at a time.